So hello and welcome to another episode of ESG Out Loud. I'm ESG Clarity's Global Editor Natasha Turner and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dan Kemp, Chief Investment Officer of EMEA at Morningstar Investment Management and Helen Goulden, CEO of the Young Foundation, to talk about the S in ESG, which seemed to get a lot of attention during the pandemic in sort of 2020 and 2021, but then kind of dipped a little bit last year and it seemed to be out of favour, at least sort of what we were seeing news-wise and so forth. But now it seems to be coming back on, on the agenda. So that's that's interesting and I'm sure we'll get into why and what some of those um, considerations are. But Helen, you've recently written a paper um, looking at the so- focus of on social factors at businesses. So let's just start with what some of your findings from that were and we can kind of go from there. Sure, so so we um, are a national charity at the Young Foundation and historically we work a lot with universities and with local government and the health sector and lots of different philanthropic organisations and far less with business. And our sort of, our response actually post pandemic when we did see more social impacts and activity created across the sectors as was why don't we see business more in our conversations when we're talking about social value they seem to we know those conversations happen but we don't think they come together and so as well as they should and so we thought well how are businesses thinking about the s of esg and particularly bigger businesses and corporations and so we had a look at all of the annual reports across the FTSE 100 um, for sort of 2021 and did a, a survey of UK businesses and what we found was really that there was a very mixed picture when it came to the S of ESG. Uh, We know that we've got some very serious social challenges but what we saw was essentially people choosing to promote and what we were mostly interested in what are they putting alongside their scope one and two reporting what are they putting alongside their financial performance so in in a sense we weren't analyzing every bit of data that they have across every report more what are they proud of and what are they choosing to highlight and what we found was that it's a quite frankly a bit of a hot mess right you can basically report what you want and you don't have to report it seems to us what you don't want and there was a very big focus on the workforce which I think is absolutely right. It's probably the primary vehicle that you can create really good prosperity and well-being across your across your workforce. And with a focus on gender, diversity, particularly um, engagement scores and so on, far less around whether you're offering fair work, far less about whether you're offering secure work, offering a living wage. And and we felt that was that was sort of you know an interesting noticing, and there was some we could probably get into the hows and what's of that. But the other sort of key noticing was a that it seemed for the purposes of this conversation that ESG investors didn't really value the S of ESG in anywhere near as much as they did um, the other sort of components of ESG. Um, but also, seventy six percent of FTSE one hundred companies very, very boldly, and I would say in some ways bravely, say that communities are their key stakeholders, and they write that alongside their 
workforce and their shareholders. And it just struck us that when they're talking about communities, we don't see anything like the same amount of rigor or attention as to are they responding to the needs, aspirations and priorities of those communities. So what we saw was an array of indicators, a lack of an organizing principle for how you think about that sensibly, um, and a sort of a, a cherry picking of things that we might or might not be interested in this year or next year. Um, in the same way that you can't do that, for example, with your sort of scope one to three reporting anymore, like there is a, there's a compliance framework um, there. And so our answer to that as a not-for-profit who are not ESG investors, we are small social investors in some in some businesses, was essentially to say, why can't we take the scope one to three framework and think about how it would apply into a social context? So essentially we've developed a scope one to four framework, which we think looks very straightforward, very simple. There's lots of complexity underneath it. But what we hoped to do was to create a way and to have a more structured conversation about what social value really means when it's generated by the private sector. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Well, I mean, a lot to pick up on on there. But so, Dan, coming from kind of the, the, the inside here a little bit, but, you know, Helen was talking about not seeing much from the, the business side um, in her work. Would you agree with with some of those points that were picked up from coming from that other angle? Do you think there's a cherry picking going on? And um, yeah, what do you think some of the uh, reasons for that might be, if so? Yeah, Natasha, I think one of the great challenges that businesses have when addressing social issues is this far less agreement about what a good social outcome looks like than there is in the uh, the environment space and and you know quite clearly i don't want to um uh i don't want to excuse either poor behavior or cherry picking all of those things that there's there's definitely a need for better structure and there's there's definitely a need for better data uh, and i would be entirely agree with that and i really like the uh, the, the, the structure that Helen and the Young Foundation have put together around this, I think it's a huge step forward. But I, I would say that when we're thinking about environmental issues, then uh, companies can report more or less progress progress, but there's a, a general agreement in terms of what good looks like. But when you get into the social sphere, then there's far less agreement. So to, to pick one of the most controversial issues, uh, let's take uh, abortive medication, for example. You know, there are uh, groups of people around the world uh, that would say that uh, the provision of uh, abortive medication to women is incredibly important in order to drive good social outcomes. And there's other large groups of people that would say entirely the, the opposite. And so for, uh, for a business, a healthcare company uh, involved in, uh, in the provision of those, those sorts of products, uh, then it's not clear that they can have a universally good outcome. And this reflects the fact that social issues are much more personalized than, uh, than environmental issues. And we've seen this all the way back through the history of ESG investing, uh, that in, environmental much more uniform, social much more personalized, it reflects people's values uh, much more, and so it, it's more difficult to, to generalize. And so as we, uh, as we think about how companies can genuinely support their local communities as they can pursue uh, these, these scopes 
that Helen set out, then I think one of the, the first things that we need to work towards is a, a universal idea of what good looks like, where uh, we can agree on, uh, on a good societal outcome, and where some things uh, reflect differing uh, moral views or, or different, differing viewpoints. So I think that's the, the, the key thing to, to bear in mind, particularly with company reports, uh, that they are trying not to alienate people, uh, and that's a, that's a consideration for all CEOs. Mm -hmm. Is there a sense in which sort of like the E becoming so kind of popular, we've been able to separate out almost the kind of ESG and the, the outcome approaches, whatever you might call it. So, you know, there'll be, there'll be people just doing kind of ESG investing, looking at like environmental risk and working that in. But when we talk about social, we kind of immediately go to outcome, don't we? I think outcomes are so important. <laughs> so, so we can we can take a, a risk framework, but uh, a risk framework is is based on uh, the idea that there is some consistency around uh, legislation, uh, which which creates the risk, or some consistency around consumer demand, which actually creates that uh, that that risk. Whereas that that's less true in the in the social sphere as, we, as we've talked about, and so that's where I think it is it is right that we focus on outcomes. Uh, but as we uh, as we do that then the clear provision of, of data, things that can be tracked and measured uh, is, is so important. We can't track and measure things really without that framework. And so this brings us back uh, to the scopes that, that Helm has set up. Yeah, I mean, I really, that is so interesting. So the, there is a real tendency, I think what we noticed in the analysis, and none of this is sort of meant with bad intent because actually there's many, many businesses doing many, many brilliant things, whether they have social purpose locked into their core or, or not. But if you look at some of the so-called social value or social impact activities across big listed co corporations, they are often talking about inputs and outputs, often. And so you've got, I'm going to count this many volunteering hours um, across, and that might be a, a difficult job to do, but it's a doable job to do. But very, and, and take that as a proxy for creating some social value. And I think you can make some reasonable assumptions to say, if we've spent 500 hours helping some kids in a disadvantaged area, um, learn how to, like tutoring those kids, I think you can make uh, some approximation of impact there, but that's not an outcome. So the outcome is the overall improved life chances and attainment of those children, which is never going to be just as a result of your attribution, which is why it's sort of right to really sort of almost take us to a higher state of consciousness in some ways, which is how do we think about our collective impact of all of those things and aligning strategic intent across different businesses and across um, different sectors. And the, and the point that you make on data and measurement is really important for two reasons. One is that if you only focus on inputs and outputs, you generally get into the business of counting and you start valuing what you can count, not counting what you actually value, right? Which is the perversity of trying to sort of get measurement around this stuff. But if you're focusing on outcomes, it also takes you to a place of wanting evidence. So you can make some assumptions that what you do is good. But what we do know is that not every good intervention does have a positive impact. Sometimes it has no impact. And sometimes you can even have 
a negative impact. You know, the most famous example is the scared straight, I think, isn't it? Where, you know, you take lots of kids who are at risk of becoming in prison to a prison to tell, tell show them how terrible it's going to be when they get there. And when they look back longitudinally and you find, oh, you know what, if kids were on that sort of scared straight initiative, they were more likely to end up in prison. So we don't really want to end up in a, I think it, it's not just about data and measurement. It's like, where's the evidence and the logic for what you're doing actually having some long-term impact uh, on the lives and outcomes of places and communities. So I uh, completely agree with the, the need for data and measurement, but also a kind of let's not yeah, hit the target, well, but miss the point, essentially. So we get to that, that deeper sense of the, the culture around business and the way that businesses think about communities. And so often it seems that there's this great psychological distance between the people in a company uh, and those communities that are trying to serve, that, that these are other. Uh, and actually it's only really by shortening that distance between ourselves and the communities around us, people working businesses uh, the, and, the, and the people around us, that, that really we can uh, see those longer term outcomes, have a better understanding of the, the, the work that we're, we're doing. And that requires that longer term time frame beyond the next set of quarterly results, uh, but also a, a decompartmentalizing of our lives uh, that I think so often when people sit in a, in a company context, they see the, the world through, through that lens. When they're out doing community work, they see the world through that lens. But really, we're integrated beings. We need to bring all of these things together, which is very difficult to, uh, to demonstrate in a, in a company report. Uh, but that's why it, it shows us that, that culture building is so important. If we're talking about uh, big businesses, then, um, you know, some of some of the biggest, and we want to put it in that wider context, I mean, can there be uh, good social outcomes? I mean, now you're getting into the kind of economics of it all, right? Um, and if you have bigger and bigger financialized businesses, where can we stop uh, kind of uh, expanding on this and, and sort of focus on practicals, I suppose? Absolutely. Large companies should have positive outcomes it just depends on how you define those those outcomes and uh, who they're directed at and uh, again this is this is where it becomes complex of course because a company that does well financially will uh, will benefit its investors and those investors will include people who uh, don't even think about themselves as investors they're just saving in their company pension scheme or uh, they maybe contribute to a, to a charity or a trust that has uh, investments in those companies so there's there's, a, there's that link link there which again if you overemphasize feels like a cop out because there are also people day to day or in communities around these businesses or interacting with these businesses uh, that also need support as, uh, as well so I, I think it's clear that big businesses can have positive societal impacts typically uh, will often do have uh, positive societal impacts uh, but trying to understand uh, what's driving those those impacts how those impacts are, are prioritized uh, compared to, to other outcomes uh, and also the culture that's driving that as well which uh, as Helen says, isn't seeking uh, sort of short-term headlines uh, but is is uh, focused on those those longer term impacts all of this is is challenging doesn't mean we shouldn't push towards it uh, but that's where that that framework is is so important to give us a, a way to think about these outcomes. 
So let, let's bring it back a little bit and um, talk about just some of the things. I mean, there's, there's, it sounds like we've got a, a good um, idea of what, what needs to be done and what can be done and the framework for doing so. But right in this moment, if you are, you know, a fund selector, so you're a bit sort of removed from even looking at uh, some of these things that are happening within companies, but you want to have a, a, a sense of what's going on from sort of one step removed. What are the kind of things, and I know you already talked about this a little bit at the beginning, Helen, but what are the kind of things that companies are doing? Some of those, I don't want to say low-hanging fruit, but those those immediate signs that the investors that are a little bit removed from the getting right stuck into this can look for, and what are some of the, um, just a couple of the things that businesses are doing kind of well and badly at the moment, would, would you both say? No, I think um, there is a real focus, um, as I said before, on the sort of on the workforce. And I really don't want to downgrade that. You saw the UN Secretary General yesterday said that on our current rate of progress, we'll achieve gender equality in 300 years. You know, so I have no wish to sort of downgrade the focus on gender equality or any activities in that area. But certainly from our analysis, when it comes to racial diversity, you certainly don't see as much attention uh, in reporting as you do in the sort of espousal of wanting to be diverse. I think class feels entirely absent and sort of, I think many people would uh, relate uh, to the sort of the, the, the sort of lack of attention to class. Um, this very, what surprised us most is that if you look at the, um, the ways in which AI and other sort of future technologies are going to change the world of work, not least, but also our lives in different ways. Uh, and of course, the transition to net zero, particularly in heavily carbonized industries, is going to be very disruptive for people on low and medium wage paid jobs. You had very little attention on future skills training. Now, that might be happening behind the scenes and our analysis didn't go deep enough. And I'm fairly sure some of the energy sector, you'll see that happening already. But where's the really explicit attention to what is the just transition for people in the transition to net zero? That feels like a pretty critical relationship. Um, and I think that we're probably heading in that direction of, of sort of people in communities and certain kind of dem demographics of people absolutely increasing in inequality and deprivation as a result of the transition. So why we focused a lot of our attention there. I don't think we saw as much as we'd like to have seen in uh, the sort of scope two, as we would define it, in terms of the supply chain. So this huge scope, if you think about FTSE 100 company has spends on average about 4 billion on procurement compared to just 10 million on their CSR strategies on average, you know, huge opportunities to leverage social value through there, through working with local social enterprises, buying ethically sound goods and services. But also, I think the missing interesting bit there. I went, spent a, a long period of my time at the innovation charity Nesta, where we worked on a centre for challenge prizes, where we we're often sort of trying to incentivize things that should exist in the world that don't already. And if you think about relatively unsexy topics like procurement and forward pro commitment procurement, there are practices where you can stimulate innovation in the supply chain for things that you want to exist by saying, actually, if you produce um, an ethical good or a social good or an environmental net zero good, and it's proven to be effective, we'll commit to purchasing 10,000, however, of them. So, you know, I think there is, you know, if Britain has a superpower, which I know that we like to think that we are still a superpower, but if we have one, it really is our 
capacity for innovation and creativity. And so I think leveraging our sort of our local and sort of national and global economies through the supply chain fields towards social value and environmental value creation fields could be far more exciting than we could are. And I think finally, I think in terms of if you're a, a one step removed um, investor, we published a piece of work a couple of years ago called Nothing About Us Without Us, which was essentially how you could bring the lived experiences of people into every single stage of the social investment process. So whether you're at a strategy, what's our fund, where is our fund going to focus, the design of the strategy, how we make decisions, how it's evaluated, trying to draw in. There are, are very, um, there are bad ways and really clumsy ways of doing this, but there are really elegant ways of bringing the voices and experiences of people into the room of that you're trying to work in the service of without it becoming too complex. So the more porous the boundaries, actually to Dan's point about, the more we connect with different kinds of people, the more we see other people as other people and human beings and want to care for them. You know, the way in which uh, an ESG fund or an investment or or, or a, an investment house you know it shouldn't be a closed shop it should seek to be thinking all the time about how do I understand the people that we're effectively trying to work in the service of even though I'm sitting at that sort of one perhaps even two step remove I'd add two little pieces to that the, the, the first is around uh, the importance of of personalization and and also engagement so when we think about personalization when, we de when we're dealing with uh, social issues, then because there is a, a lack of perfect agreement, uh, there's never a perfect agreement, but there's a la lack of even broad agreement in terms of what a good social outcome is and where people want to focus uh, if they are uh, putting their, their values to work in terms of their, their investments, then the, the more uh, opportunities people have to reflect their values in investment, uh, their, their specific values, not necessarily having to, to grab hold of mass market values, uh, I think is, is really important. And we're seeing that in the ESG world now, which is which is wonderful. It used to be the preserve of the very rich uh, when I started doing this 25 years ago, but increasingly with the, the broad spread of, of uh, funds, investment strategies and services available, uh, we are in, uh, enabling people to be far more uh, personalised in how they put their capital to work and, and which of these areas, as Helen was talking about, that they particularly want to focus on, on supporting. So I think that's really important. And then the second thing is that engagement with, with companies. We're, uh, we're used to fund management groups engaging on environmental issues, engaging on, on governance issues, when we're less uh, used to them engaging on social issues. Uh, and again, uh, fund managers will typically engage in areas that reflect the concerns of their consumers. And so the, the more that people can express those concerns, the more that fund management groups can understand what those concerns are, the more opportunity they have to engage on social issues and them to push these things that Helen's talking about. So if we, if we want to see real change in existing companies, particularly large companies, then there has to be engagement. But in order to connect people to those companies, then we need uh, products, more products, where people can express their values. Yeah, and I think, we, you know, we've certainly seen a lot of more focus on social factors in terms of fund launches but it definitely seems to be in the bond space rather than you know we're talking about businesses here and companies um, and then you know on the engagement point as well definitely um, seems to be 
less of a focus on on social than than on environment perhaps well at least in the UK um, we see it slightly differently on our on our US site do you have any kind of uh, examples of of what a good engagement might look like um, when it comes to social issues and 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 yeah what, what what do you think we need to go next in terms of getting people to be able to uh, invest with their values when it comes to the options for sort of social investment yeah so i i think in, engagement is genuinely tricky for fund manager groups at, at the moment particularly given the political situation in the us and that need to uh to define and follow uh, fiduciary duty. Uh, that, that is really important. Uh, the, the people who are engaging, they are, they are not representing their own capital, typically they're representing capital of, of, of savers, uh, and they need to do that really well to the benefit of those, of, of those savers. But one of the things that, that we can do when we're engaging is think longer term. Uh, and this is this is one of the challenges that the industry is wrestling with at the moment, that uh, the outcome of some of your engagement may be that profits dip in the shorter term, uh, but that could create more value in the, in the longer term. And, and that's, uh, to, to, to my, from my perspective, uh, that is in line with your fiduciary duty. Uh, company boards constantly make decisions to, uh, to reinvest in businesses, to reduce immediate shareholder returns in order to generate a greater longer term returns uh, but but nevertheless uh, that is something that the groups are wrestling with but of course they don't have to wrestle as much if the uh, if the values if the desires of their investors are clear so if they're providing um, uh, products and strategies where uh, investors can express their their own values and that is clearly seen in the uh, in the purposes of the of the investment fund of the strategy then uh, that gives the, uh, the the companies that are involved in more gain or fund managers involved in engagement more scope to, to pursue that and, and so that's mm -hmm. where that that variety comes from i think but it, it's certainly not an easy thing uh, but it's it's something where we're seeing uh, some progress but still painfully slow on the social side i mean even yeah i mean that that resonates really strongly i think even in the social investment space uh even with a, an organization that is that has it a sort of a social mission locked into its business you're still around a board table at times negotiating trade-offs of social and environment uh, social and financial returns and it always still seems that there's a slight sort of dip towards the financial it's a it's a conscious thing i guess my question if you don't mind um natasha let me ask you a question of dan which is you know it's the sort of compliance and regulatory framework around um, environmental and particularly carbon and GHG reductions is, you know, it, it feels like it's, it's, you know, there's a journey to travel, right, but it's, but it's there. And when we looked at a lot of these reports, a certain number off the top of my head is about four, six percent. They talk about explicitly, this is big FTSE 100 companies, talk explicitly about um, a just transition and there being an actual blending that social and environmental progress are two sides of the same coin. Um, and do you think that there is a, a route through kind of advancing on social impact through an environmental lens that you, that you can effectively bring those things a little bit more into closer alignment? Yeah, I think you certainly can. And yeah, again, I'd recommend your report to, to anybody because I think you bring that out really well uh, in the research that you've, you've done there showing 
that the the impact of uh, unequal uh, um, uh, push towards environmental change can have on on the social conditions of, of people. So so definitely there's there's a strong linkage there, and uh, and one has to come with the other. But but of course we can't, and you'll know this better than I do. We can't purely address social issues through the environmental lens. And so I think the, yeah. the industry being able to, to solve pursuing social issues as, a, as an individual pursuit, rather than just uh, something that's tacked on to an environmental pursuit. I know that's not what you're suggesting, but, uh, no. but I think that's, that's what we, we, need to, we need to do both, it seems to me. Mm. And I think we, uh, we talked a little bit about the, um, yeah, difference between sort of splitting out ES and G or considering them kind of holistically in the last social panel you did with us, Dan, um, back in November. So a little plug for that if anyone wants to go back and listen. Um, brilliant. I mean, just before we, we sort of finish up, is there anything else that um, you, you both kind of think is worth mentioning? Thank you, Natasha. There's a couple of things, I think, genuinely, um, you know, you will know uh, not-for-profits and businesses don't often speak the same language you know they try to work together and sometimes really effective partnerships uh, but it is it's it's definitely a, a, a new avenue of interest for us and I'm really interested in more people having a look at it and saying no this doesn't stack up or this does stack up or actually if we were to unpack what was in each of those scopes so if actually as investors we want you know we want some real standards under each of those scope where you can report consistently we want to be able to trust and have some credibility so some universal factors about how that might happen um and a sort of a commitment to being part of a journey from say scope one to four if one chooses to think about it like that um i'm really interested in feedback for a start um so if any of your listeners do want to sort of comment i would be really really grateful for that and the second thing i guess is that i think a site businesses and an investor's responsibility to society depends somewhat on the state of that society. And so I wouldn't want to downplay just how big some of our social challenges are in this country and across the world. So whether or not we have a moral or intrinsic or extrinsic motivation to take action on the things that affect us at a certain point, uh, if you look at health inequalities, if you look at some of the inequalities generally across the economy, and the you know, four million children were living in this country in poverty in a you know in the UK, four million children, let alone anywhere else in the world, there are some really big challenges, and businesses have got some big challenges. Of course, Brexit, pandemic, war in Ukraine, ongoing effects of mini budgets, and so on. So it's not to take away, not to sort of put the burden of responsibility on business, but. There needs to be some more open conversation about what the responsibility of a business is when you are in particularly almost existential times, I would say. So this isn't a business as usual. Let's just do some social impact. It's what's our genuine moral responsibility to people and planet. Yeah, I would completely agree with agree with that. And uh, I think from the investors perspective, the the other thing I want to convey is that when we think about environmental change on its own then it's it's much easier to calculate the potential financial benefits uh, looking at from the perspective of the risk that uh, net zero brings to businesses and the importance uh, for business to get ahead of that if they're to have a have a sustainable future uh, then it's much easier to do that from an environmental context and it is uh, when we're thinking about about social issues and in reality 
if we do prioritize uh, social issues as, uh, as investors, if companies give more thought to the communities that they're impacting, those around them, their employees, of course, and, and everyone else that interacts with them, supply chains, uh, then if we, if we do that, then it's less clear to see the immediate uh, financial upside, typically, that there is more likely to be some uh, financial downside, uh, at least in the short term. And, and so if you're an advisor helping clients or fund manager helping clients uh, to, uh, to express their values through their portfolio, then having a deep understanding of what the specific values are and helping people understand that there may be some short-term costs if they're successful uh, in addressing these social issues through their portfolios. But uh, as with all aspects of investment, it's important to look at the, the longer term, not just the, the, the longer term value of your investment, but of course the, the longer term uh, benefit of having an integrated view of your life that brings together your values uh, and your in, investing future. And so it, it's so important to have that, that really clear conversation with your client about what they care about and how much they care about it. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.